The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome back to another episode of Francis Watch, sponsored by Novus Ordo Watch. With me today is one of our regular guests, Father Anthony Chicada, but filling in for a on-the-road Bishop Sanborn is His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan. Your Excellency Father, thank you for joining us. Well, you're very welcome. It's nice to be here. Wonderful to be here watching Francis once again. <laughs> uh, Your Excellency, would you like to start us with a prayer? Happy to. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. O God, who seest that we fall through our own infirmity, mercifully restore us to thy love by the example of thy saints, who livest and reignest world without end. Amen. Amen. Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Well. You guys can see it's it's nice to have you with us. I, I don't think you've you've been with us before. I've I've had to work with Father Chicada alone when His Excellency has been away, and uh, when Father was dealing with so, what some call the Big C uh, a couple years ago, I had to work with uh, Bishop Sanborn alone. So it's nice to have uh, both of you here. These sort of conversations work really well when we have differing perspectives. Mm-hmm. Certainly, our very first category that we'll cover is acts of the so-called magisterium. And as March came to a close, we had a new apostolic exhortation called Christus Vivit. As usual, Francis was prolix in his writing and making sure not to cite anything from prior to the council. So what I will do is what I normally do, read paragraph by paragraph. And in this case, I've selected for from our common graph aiding it should not be from our huge economic interests operating the world cape size control as are invasive mechanisms for relation of conscience and democratic process the way many platforms work often ends up favoring encounter between persons who think alike shielding them from debate these closed circuits facilitate the spread of fake news and false information fomenting prejudice and hate the proliferation of fake news is the expression of a culture that has lost its sense of truth and bends the facts to suit particular interests. The reputation of individuals is put in jeopardy through summary trials conducted online. The church and her pastors are not exempt from this phenomenon. <laughs> it's um, When I read this in preparation for my guest spot today, Stephen, I was taken aback. It's scary. And I don't know if if this point has been made before on these shows, but what Bergoglio is saying here is basically true. And a lot of what he says is basically true. You have to understand me here. That is how the fathers say that heresy works, that heresy is leprosy, and leprosy is, is a spotting on the skin. It's a combination of the healthy and of the sick. So this paragraph 89 starts off by saying about the huge economic interests operating in the digital world, absolutely true. 
forms of control, is invasive mechanisms for the manipulation of consciences and of the so-called democratic process. That, that, that describes the conciliar church, that describes the modern world, that describes the West uh, perfectly. It's, it's, it gets a little bit fuzzy at times, like about the platforms work up favoring encounter between persons who think alike, shielding them from debate. Well, that's how those people are. That's how the leftists are. They're not interested in talking to any Catholics. That's for sure. You wouldn't even get in the door. You wouldn't get the time of day from them. And then it's fake news. That's obviously an homage to our president, Donald Trump, which is interesting, although he's said to be very, very opposed to him, nevertheless, and prejudice and hate, uh, an expression of a culture that has lost its sense of truth, yes, and bends effects to suit particular interests. The reputation of individuals is put into jeopardy through summary trials conducted online. Anybody who's even vaguely Catholic gets that from them. And the church and her pastors are not exempt from this phenomenon. Basically, what Bergoglio is saying here is true. When somebody who's such a great liar says the truth, it should worry us. It should worry us. It's not, it's not really a comfortable thing. But that is, if I may speak just in general terms, that is often how Bergoglio operates. His whole shtick for years now about mercy. Some of what he says about mercy is correct. Other of the things which he says about mercy are obviously totally false, and it's a mixture of truth and of falsehood. But to hear paragraph 89 is almost a little disarming. You would think, well, maybe the guy isn't so bad after all. But he's going to take these truths, and then he's going to twist them, and he's going to use them to promote his own purposes. But 89 is pretty good. What do you think, Father? Yeah, well, the same thing here, and one, one thinks, too, of, say, a number of the things that JP2 said, uh, that uh, his promotion of devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary, etc. I mean, uh, a lot of those things, once you cut through the Polish-European intellectual code, were edifying and, and quite good and true. But the fundamental problem was not with that, if everything you said was false and uh, directly damaging to the Catholic faith, no one would listen to you at all, would they? No. no. I'm, I'm reminded of Paul VI declaring Our Lady as Mother of the Church in between sessions that were some of the worst sessions of Vatican II. You say, well, of course Our Lady is the Mother of the Church. That's a, that's a wonderful thing, but it's coming out of that guy's mouth. And so therefore today, one could never use that title. Because that title is irretrievably lost in the swamps of Vatican II and of Paul VI. But, I mean, there are huge economic interests operating in the digital world. We speak about that truth frequently. Obviously, he wants to give it some type of a a Marxist interpretation. But nevertheless, it is a truth, and and it does need to be said. The paragraphs that got a lot of focus from the media who were looking for some kind of mea culpa regarding the sexual abuse scandal are paragraphs 95 through 98. Read 95 and 96 together, and then 97 and 98 together. 95, recently urgent appeals have been made for us to hear the cry of victims of different kinds of abuse perpetrated by some bishops, priests, religious, and laypersons. These sins cause their victims sufferings that can last a lifetime and that no repentance can remedy. This phenomenon is widespread in society and also affects the church and represents a serious obstacle to her mission. 
It is true that the scourge of the sexual abuse of minors is and historically has been a widespread phenomenon in all cultures and societies, especially within families and in various institutions. Its extent has become known primarily thanks to changes in public opinion. Even so, this problem, while it is universal and gravely affects our societies as a whole, is in no less way less monstrous when it takes place within the church. Indeed, in people's justified anger, the church sees the reflection of the wrath of God betrayed and insulted. Again, it's, that's perfectly true. It is widespread. It's a horrible thing. It's a widespread phenomenon in all culture and in all societies and in different institutions. The church is blamed as a way of destroying whatever is left of true Christianity, which is Catholicism. You see that successfully done in Ireland. That seems to be, everything seems to have been wrapped up and finished with the Bergoglio visit there in September or the end of August. But what he says about these things is perfectly true, and it is monstrous. But they're the monsters. They are the ones who are to blame for this terrible scourge in the church. And um, that's because of the um, institutional loyalty. That's because belief in God and any desire towards genuine sanctity has been drained out of the Novus Ordo institution over the last 50 years. It's simply a job for the clergy and for the people. They want a, a vague sort of a cultural, either a cultural heritage or a sop on the way their daily life works now using a little religion when they, when they feel like it. Nobody has this idea anymore of God the sanctity of God, and God is a judge, and um, the Ten Commandments, those things those things are all gone, and that the priest is meant to be indeed another Christ. That's all gone. So the church, the Novus Ordo, you have to always say, though, this isn't the church. This is not the church. This is a Novus Ordo. This is a new order religion. It's a false church. And indeed, the people should have, have a justified anger as, as they face it. But one of the great causes is that of institutional loyalty, which is put over individuals, and then the lack of individual sanctity and of penance and of uh, self-control, even those very, very basic things. And that was all destroyed by Vatican II. Why isn't that joker talking about what he did? He's a, he's a Vatican II generation priest, not even a valid priest. Why aren't they talking about that? They're the ones who opened up the floodgates. They're the ones who destroyed everything. And now they've sown the, the wind, and now they have to reap what they've sown. And as most post-Vatican II claimants, he's mostly quoting himself. The footnotes for paragraph 95 and 96 are his own previous speeches <laughs> on the matter. And, and while, while he is, in a certain sense, a great expert on the subject, as the nuns used to tell us in grade school, even birds of a feather flock together. Nevertheless, it is kind of pitiful in that even though he manages in the surface to be able to tell quite a bit of true things, when you think of who is Bergoglio and what, what is he really up to and what are they all up to, it's always the same thing. The institution acts to preserve itself. And uh, truth and innocence and virtue and sanctity, these things have no meaning. They never, they, they never did for the Southern Church. That was destroyed very early on. The yeah, next point, Stephen, about its firm commitment 
to adopting rigorous preventative measures intended to avoid the recurrence of these crimes, starting with the selection and formation of those who, to whom tasks of responsibility and education will be instructed. Well, adopting rigorous preventative measures. My first thought is how about adopting the Ten Commandments? <laughs> you know, if, if you want to go for a, as it were, a rock-solid guideline for what you're going to do, uh, <clears throat> why not adapt that? It was because, talk about the culture of cover-up, it was because they didn't do this in the first place. They didn't act according to what the fundamental principles of the natural law and of the divine positive law, that they got into the mess that they did. They uh, ended up tolerating all sorts of horrible things. And uh, while, you know, while there is indeed a measure of truth in uh, some of the things that, that Berge has said uh, in the previous paragraphs, uh, surely at the, the root of it, the real truth is that they uh, were not uh, committed to adopt the rigorous principles of the Ten Commandments after Vatican II, and that's what messed everything up. We lived through, didn't we, Father? Oh, yeah. the, the, the imposition of the new morality in the seminaries. Yeah. The uh, Baum and... Uh, uh, Baum and Joseph Fuchs and Bernard Herring, uh, Pickled Herring, and all of these awful creatures, you know, we'll, we're going to sit down and discuss what we feel about different moral principles in the New Testament. So this this is, uh, you know, in our New Testament morality class, right? We're going to figure out now, I uh, have new perspectives into what the New Testament said. I thought that that was pretty much settled. And then I was simply, that was revealed, and I was going to be told about it and not given a paperback book and told, Tony, please figure it out yourself. You know, what are we paying the professors for? <laughs> So, <clears throat> to deconstruct, Father, to deconstruct. I guess know. so, right? Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's really very, very, very important. At, at the same time, the determination to apply the actions and sanctions that are so necessary must be reiterated. And they're only doing that because they got caught <laughs> and got caught by public opinion, not obeying the Ten Commandments, and now they have a mess on their hands. There can be no turning back. Yeah, right. And so perhaps in these paragraphs, he's lulled us to sleep because Your Excellency Bishop Sanborn always says in a lot of these episodes that he feels like he's back in the 60s was when we read some of these yes. things. And I think in paragraph 98, the snake is out there ready to strike. Abuse exists in various forms, the abuse of power, the abuse of conscience, sexual and financial abuse. Clearly, the ways of exercising authority that make all this possible have to be eradicated and the irresponsibility and lack of transparency with which so many cases have been handled by me have to be challenged. The desire to dominate lack of dialogue and transparency forms of double life, spiritual emptiness, as well as psychological weaknesses are the terrain on which corruption thrives. Clericalism is a constant temptation on the part of priests who see the ministry they have received as a power to be exercised rather than a free and generous service to be offered. It makes us think that we belong to a group that has all the answers and no longer needs to listen or has anything to learn. Doubtless, such clericalism can make consecrated persons lose respect for the sacred and inalienable worth of each person and of his or her freedom. There well, it is. What we have here is you know, a vintage sort of poisonous modernist equivalency foam, which is put over everything. 
and the, the uh, abuse of power, conscience, sexual, and financial All thrown abuse. in together. Yeah, they, so they throw everything in together without distinction. And uh, the uh, hope you will not notice what they're doing that, making everything sort of equivalent. And there's no sort of hierarchy of distinctions of good and bad, uh, true and false, etc. It's all this, this sort of poisonous foam cotton candy that they throw over everything. And that's what this clown is doing. And like Bernadine's seamless garment, unless you're for letting the Central Americans in on the southern border, you're not really for life. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, without, you know, without distinction, the desire to dominate, the lack of dialogue and transparency. All this does is describes Bergoglio today, the way he acts, this whole way, what he talks about clericalism, and it describes how the new religion was forced down the throats of Catholics, clergy and laity alike, beginning over 50 years ago. This is Bergoglio looking in a mirror, speaking in a mirror, looking at himself, looking at the clerical world that he came from, the world of Vatican II, ideas of Vatican II, the false doctrines, put into practice in his life and in his Petrine ministry, you might say. This is exactly the way he has always functioned. This is the way he continues to function. He's talking about himself. Makes us think we belong to a group that has all the answers and no longer needs to listen or has anything to uh, learn. Yeah, his answer is that, well, you really can't have any answers. Right. That, but, but as a matter of fact, I do have the answers. Yes. So don't question me. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, the, the answer is that there is no answer. And you have to take that as an absolute. Okay. Well, I- as you said, that vintage father smells like a soixante wheat. You know, it's, uh, it's yeah. that horrible poison of the 60s. It's a perpetual revolution. Trotsky again. Yeah, yes. tr- trotting out Trotsky. Yeah, yeah. Moving on to our Caution Francis Speaks and Acts section. God wills the diversity of religions. Did you know that, Your Excellency? I, I never knew that before. Of course, one learned from the Holy Father, after all. Oh, that's right. It's, it's Freedom is a right of every person. Each individual enjoys the freedom of belief, thought, expression, and action. The pluralism and the diversity of religions, color, sex, race, and language are willed by God in his wisdom through which he created human beings. This divine wisdom is the source from which the right to freedom of belief and the freedom to be different derives. (laughs) Well, isn't that cute, Your Excellency? Is that the reason why the Vatican is promoting giving children drugs in order to start the the tranny process by any chance? (laughs) This quote came from a document that he issued regarding interreligious fraternity uh, of religions. And it was from this this Abu Dhabi uh, that, that happened recently. But he's essentially saying that God wants there to be many religions. You couldn't get any more heretical than this. And everyone's looking for where they always will say to you, well, where's the heresy? Where's the heresy? Here's the heresy, my friend. Look, it's right before your eyes. Is anybody crying out oh, that he's a heretic and he doesn't possess the office? I don't think so. None so blind as those who will not see. Yeah, in effect, it's a blasphemy that God wills uh, falsehood and evil. Yes, and uh, the you know omnes de gentium demonia. All the gods of the heathens are, are demons, 
And when I heard this, it's apostasy. It throws out everything. It throws out absolutely everything. And it doesn't matter, again, once again, what you believe, because God wills all of this this contradiction. Then, uh, you know, you get a chucklehead uh, like this uh, guy from uh, Turkmenistan or Kazakhstan or wherever it is, this Bishop Schneider, who's... Uh, one of the stands. Yeah, going one of the stands. And the uh, hard to see where he's not actually one of the Ollies as well, <laughs> you know, for the fine mess he's gotten us into. But where he will accept an explanation of this from Bergoglio, who essentially lies to his face and says, oh, gee, no, it's just the permissive will of God. You know, I have a bridge to sell you in Brooklyn, right? It's obvious from the, uh, he didn't mean when he was signing this document with the uh, guy who had his terminals swathed up on his head, that uh, he didn't mean to tell him that, well, God tolerates your religion. He meant to tell this guy that God approves your religion. And that's the clear meaning on the face of it. And you get to this, this moment, the emperor obviously has no clothes, and someone like uh, Schneider, this Bishop Athanasius Schneider, is trying to tell us otherwise. It's obvious what the guy said. The setup, I thought, was very interesting. You see the, the Stan bishops meeting with Bergoglio, and then at the end, you see on the internet this long pause of Bergoglio speaking most sincerely and holding, I don't know if he tried to kiss, but at least he was holding uh, Schneider's hand while he explained this truth. And then this little film clip is now meant to be given out to the whole world in order to reassure his conservative constituency. Gee, I didn't really mean it. And look, didn't you see the movie? Everything is okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, your Excellency Father, at least he's being consistent with Vatican II. That very first sentence we could lift it out of Dignitatis Humanae. Freedom is a right of every person. Each individual enjoys the freedom of belief, thought, expression, and action. This is a Vatican II statement, and it is anti-Catholic on its face. Absolutely. He, he, ideas matter. He's a Vatican II. He's a Vatican II clergyman. And this is what they taught, and this is what they teach. And if you're part of that religion, you would better get used to it. It's diversity. It doesn't matter whether you think like Schneider or whether you uh, go along with the literal meaning of, of uh, JP2, because his idea of faith is not uh, something that is, is sent to what God reveals, but it's encountered, feeling, etc. And the Schneiderite followers, well, uh, they feel one way about means of salvation, and the Bergoglioites and the Muslims feel another way. But again, as they say in Kentucky, it don't make no difference. That yeah. we're all going to heaven. Right? And the main thing is not where you're going, it's that you're going together. Yeah, it's you have to accompany yeah. each other. So you hold hands and we're walking together. And that's what faith is. Dr. Ratzinger, call your office. Isn't that isn't faith just a matter of accompanying and encountering? Yeah, accompanying and accompanying and encountering. So that's why the Holy Father goes to all of these Mohammedan countries and non-Catholic countries in order to encounter. Because that's really what faith is. He really is spreading the faith, if you think about it. Well, and he, he goes rightly to that point. Later on in that same event, he says, the enemy of fraternity is an individualism which translates into the desire to affirm oneself and one's own group above others. <laughs> this danger threatens all aspects of life, even the highest innate prerogative of man, that is, the openness to the transcendent 
and to religious piety. True religious piety consists in loving God with all one's heart and one's neighbor as oneself. Religious behavior, therefore, needs continually to be purified from the recurrent temptation to judge others as enemies and adversaries. Each belief system is called to overcome the divide between friends and enemies in order to take up the perspective of heaven, which embraces persons without privilege or discrimination. Is that why our Lord cleansed the temple with a whip? Twice, Twice. yeah. Uh. This, you know, I'm struck by the idea of the wheat and the cockle, that there is an acknowledgement that we are going to have these people with us, but they're not coming with us to the same place. They have their own role on this side of the veil. But The, the gospel parable uh, enunciates the truth of the church's social teaching that many of these, and Thomas Aquinas for that matter, many of these evils are to be tolerated in society for one good reason or for another, but they are to be tolerated for a time. And eventually the harvest will come and someone is going to be busy gathering up into bundles to burn. That's the part that never gets talked about anymore. And then when you talk about tolerance, the thing is that the tolerance in the classic sense means there's an evil or there's an error that you're you're putting up with. Okay. But tolerance in the Bergoglio sense means that you accept it as it is because what? It don't make no difference. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, whether it is an error, whether it is an evil, because ultimately we're all going to heaven anyway. And it's and it's a trip that matters. So let's walk together. Yeah. Like Delta's old slogan that getting there is half the fun. <laughs> OK, that's no longer the case in Delta. They don't dare you know, try that. <laughs> well, especially if you're going to get dragged off a plane by, by some of the oh, other airlines. Uh, that's, that's certainly not half of the fun. I'm reminded that. Uh, I think either you or His Excellency in a sermon has mentioned this, the phrase, whatever works. And I thought that this was really as a a modern phrase that sort of betrays intellectual honesty. And this is happening with Athanasius Schneider as well. He gets these personal reassurances that Father had alluded to. I mentioned this point to the Holy Father, and he acknowledged that with this direct comparison, the sentence can be understood erroneously. I stressed in my response to him that the diversity of sexes is not the permissive will of God, but it is positively willed by God. And the Holy Father acknowledged this and agreed with me that the diversity of the sexes is not a matter of God's permissive will. But when we mention both of these phrases in the same sentence, then the diversity of religions is interpreted as positively willed by God, like the diversity of sexes. The sentence, therefore, leads to doubt and erroneous interpretations. And so it was my desire and my request that the Holy Father rectify this. But he said to us bishops, you can say that the phrase in question on the diversity of religions means the permissive will of God. And I yeah. imagined a little dog getting pet on his head, <laughs> saying, if that's what you want to tell your faithful, your excellency, you're welcome to do so. <laughs> Isn't that cute? Erroneous interpretations, but it doesn't make any difference. <laughs> because whatever works. Whatever works. And that's because being a Christian isn't about adhering to doctrine, we're told. We do this by the way we live as disciples of Jesus in the midst of those with whom we share our daily lives, joys, and sorrows, sufferings, and hopes. In other words, the paths of mission are not those of proselytism. Oh, proselytism. Please, these paths are not those of proselytism. Let us recall Benedict XVI. I don't know why he doesn't say St. Benedict XVI. The church grows not through proselytism, but through attraction, through witness. The paths of mission are not those of proselytism, which leads always to a cul-de-sac, 
but of our way of being with Jesus and with others. The problem is not when we are few in number, but when we are insignificant. Salt that has lost the flavor of the gospel. This is the problem. Or lamps that no longer shed light. I mean, I can't even finish reading that. So you want to talk about salt losing the flavor and lamps not shedding light, and you're saying that we're, the mission is not ad gentes? Yeah, it's just... Uh, then, then uh, rightly so, some commentators have spoken about uh, the theology and the practical practice, the apostolate of St. Francis, who went all the way to Cairo, went all the way to, and then finally to the Holy Land, to the Mohammedans, in order to, uh, to preach to them the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. The caliph was amazed at his boldness. That was a quote. But because of his sanctity, and that was because of the permissive will of God was not there, he didn't <laughs> tear chop off his head, and he was allowed to go back safely. That's what Catholics do. Not, not what saints do. That's what Catholics do. They preach Jesus Christ. And these clowns are not Catholics. Every paragraph that we read in this, in this program shows their utter, utter lack of faith. I mean, what does this mean? Proselytism leads to a cul-de-sac? <laughs> yeah, well, it's a denial of the great commission of our Lord and the great command to preach the gospel, uh, you know, to every creature. And it's a denial of the essential mission of the church and the apostles. And the use of the term proselytism is a classic modernist play. That is to say, he takes a term which is ambiguous, which is susceptible to several meanings. I mean, you could have proselytism defined as the way, say, Mormon missionaries would promise you this or that material advantage if you join their American church. And that's why the Mormons do so well in a country like Mexico, where everyone is so poor and they want to be like America. Well, that's proselytism. Or the Jehovah's Witnesses, who have the largest fallout rate of any religion in the world, as far as I know. That's proselytism. But he did, at the same time, it could also be interpreted as what a Catholic might do on his lunch hour today. He might talk, he might answer a question, and he might get into discussion with a co-worker over lunch about the Catholic Church and the beauty and the clarity and why we honor Our Lady and why we don't worship her, say something like that. And for, for Bergoglio, that would be proselytism, fuzzy terminology. He goes on to say in this in the same document, I believe we should worry whenever we Christians are, and again, this was in Morocco, not in Abu Dhabi, when he's giving this speech. I believe we should worry whenever we Christians are troubled by the thought we are only significant if we are the flower, if we occupy all the spaces. <laughs> you know very well that our lives are meant to be yeast wherever and with whomever we find ourselves, even if this appears to bring no tangible or immediate benefits. For being a Christian is not about adhering to a doctrine or a temple or an ethnic group. Being Christian is about an encounter, an encounter with Jesus Christ. We are Christians because we have been loved and encountered and not as the result of proselytism. (laughs) Because being Christian is about knowing that we have been forgiven and knowing that we are asked to treat others in the same way that God treated us, for by this, everyone shall know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. All I could say to that is look at the way they treat those who, aside from the showcase traditionalists who are allowed to survive, like Athanasius Schneider, <laughs> look at the way they destroyed those Franciscans because they dared to keep some hull, some, some externals of traditional Catholicism outside the conciliar system. They were destroyed. The man proves he's not only a modernist with every sentence, but he also proves that he's an utter and entire 
hypocrite with every sentence. Watch for the verb is in discourse like this, because the tendency is also the false comparison of one thing with another and something that gives you a descriptive definition uh, or some sort of analogical definition of something rather than an essential definition. Because you take something like, uh, you say, well, faith is an encounter. Well, yeah, sure, it's an encounter. Okay, and that, uh, you know, we encounter God's revelation, etc. But the uh, that's a consequence of something else, which is uh, an ascent to what God has revealed. So by throwing out these different fuzzy terms, uh, using the is word all the time, this the modernists do a great deal of damage. I think one of the definitions of the church that we were given was by Hans Urs von Balthasar, who was a modernist, and his definition of the church was, well, the church is the living sacrament of the pneuma, the freedom of our freedoms. <laughs> now, I see that you're puzzled by that, Stephen. <laughs> and but I mean, people, you know, would think, geez, you know, that's really deep what you're saying there, old Hans Urs. You know, that, that there's got to be a lot to it. I don't really understand it, but, you know, let's go for it. But again, it's one of those uh, misuse uh, of the word is. You know, the church is not the freedom of our freedoms uh, and the living sacrament of the Pinelma, certainly not in the way that Hans Urs von Balthasar means. Modernists are always giving us these new definitions that have no precedent in church teaching, uh, teaching of the fathers, the councils, and they're supposed to wow us. The church is a mystery. The church is a sacrament. Well, where did you get those crazy ideas? Yeah. The first time I heard that the church is a sacrament, I thought there were only seven sacraments. Right? I remember. Oh, that's, that's medieval thinking, Father. Yeah. You're thinking like a medieval scholastic. You've yeah. got to grow beyond that. Yeah. Let me hold your hand here. And we'll walk <laughs> a little bit together. Don't, don't, don't limit yourself, Father. No limit. Um, don't, don't limit yourself to the encounters you can have. Speaking of encounters, Bergoglio, in an address to the uh, priests of Rome in the Archbasilica of St. John Lateran, said that the church was caught in flagrant adultery. said, oh, yeah. let us not be discouraged. The Lord is purifying his bride. He is converting us all to himself. He is putting us to the test for we to understand that without him, we are dust. He is saving us from hypocrisy, from the spirituality of appearances. He is blowing his spirit to restore beauty to his bride, surprised in flagrant adultery. Well, These, there's your Duma for you. Yeah, that's that's the freedom of our freedoms, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the arch hypocrite himself, the person obsessed with appearances, is telling us that uh, we are being saved from the spirituality of appearances. Yeah. What he says in a very blatant and deeply offensive fashion against uh, the Immaculate Bride of Christ, which is Holy Mother Church, being now an adulteress, the neocons say, and the pious attenthers say in a somewhat attenuated fashion, but it's the same thing. The church can teach error. The church can be the mistress of falsehood as well as of truth. And then, of course, in that case, it's up to a dead archbishop or somebody else to tell you what you're actually supposed to be doing today. But Bergoglio, at least here, makes it very, very clear that he has no respect at all for Catholic doctrine and no love for Holy Mother Church, whom he accuses of, of adultery. 
Stephen, I can't help giving this an interpretation in connection with the, uh, the long lesson or epistle that we had the other day on the Saturday after the third Sunday of Lent. It's the story of Daniel and Susanna. And Susanna was accosted by two wicked old judges of the Hebrews, and they tried to force her to commit adultery. And then the text in Daniel, the Latin is about these judges, qui videvanter regere populum, who seemed, who were seen to, or who seemed to rule over the people. That's a conciliar church. They want to tempt all of us, even as they tried to get Holy Mother Church to commit spiritual adultery. And that spiritual adultery is the far more serious crime. That's the one that we refuse to commit. And that's the one that everybody else is committed to committing today because they don't really believe that the church is the Immaculate Bride of Christ. This is a horrible blasphemy. Going on with the theme of adultery and the sins of the flesh, we're told by Bergoglio in an interview with an interviewer, Dominique Volton, that the least serious sins are actually the sins of the flesh. Our Lady at Fatima was actually not correct, Your Excellency. The quote is, the paradox is that the Catholic Church condemns, as the interviewer, the paradox is that the Catholic Church condemns capitalism, money, inequalities, but those criticisms go rather unheard. On the other hand, on morals, it knows how to make its critiques and condemnations heard. Pope Francis, the least serious sins are the sins of the flesh. Well, let me make sure I correct you. Dominique, all right, but that needs to be said more forcefully because the message isn't getting across. Pope Francis, the sins of the flesh are not necessarily always the gravest because the flesh is weak. The most dangerous sins are those of the mind. I have talked about angelism. Pride and vanity are sins of angelism. I understood your question. The church is the church. Priests have been tempted, not all of them, but many of them, to focus on the sins of sexuality. Priests have been tempted to focus on sins of sexuality. That's what I've already talked to you about, what I call below-the-waist morality. The more serious sins are elsewhere. Ugh. If that's a temptation, most of his priests have resisted that temptation. Like <laughs> <laughs> and they're actually strong, strong-willed and, and uh, very decisive when it comes to rejecting that particular temptation to focus on, on the sins of sexuality. And of course, the answer to that and to all of the rest of the nonsense here is our Lord calling a child into the midst of the disciples, babies, children. What's the purpose of sex? The purpose of sex is to bring new life into the world. The monstrous destruction of life, murder, and then the moral murder, the destruction of children by means of abuse. These things are the consequences of these sins, which this um, Argentinian so cavalierly dismisses in this interview. Once again, it is absolutely monstrous, but you feel it more in your human nature when you see what the consequences are each day to families, children, to life itself, to the future of the West, all because of these sins. These are the consequences of what Our Lady truthfully said were the sins that are sending people into hell. She said like snowflakes, is that right? Yes. It's an analogy that's been used for centuries in the church. And, and it is the truth. The other thing, though, to consider in something like this is that if you go between this particular statement of Bergoglio's and some of his previous statements, the thing is that in this sense, that heresy in the sight of God is more dangerous because it has allowed these people to absolve, in effect, sins of the flesh. So this starts out with a theological error. 
mm-hmm. uh, and a denial of different articles of the Catholic faith, of messing everything up, running it through the modernist meat grinder. So when you get to the other side of the Decalogue, as it were, then you can justify just about anything. So it's what you see is the product of these, these terrible sins you see is the product of heresy and is the product of the spiritual adultery uh, that the conciliar church has gotten into in the first place. So it, it hangs together. The Germans would say this all hangs zusammen. It all hangs together. Well, he does have some advice for you and His Excellency. Conversely, some priests, when they receive confession of a sin of this kind, ask, how did you do it? And when did you do it? And for how long? And they have a film playing in their head. But those priests need a psychiatrist. (laughs) Some medical advice for priests who are following the the regular procedures of casuistry and and confession. I think that he's got wind running in his head (laughs) and out of other parts of his body as well. (laughs) The uh, idea is he's poo-pooing the notion of integrity of the confession, which is that you confess species and number. That's all you have to do when it comes to the moral sin. You don't... You're not supposed to confess all the circumstances unless they change the nature of the sin. And the way that this is conducted is in a sort of dry, matter-of-fact, very objective way. And that's what seminarians are taught in the seminary. I know we just went over this stuff a few months ago in the seminary sacraments course. What this clown does is he appeals, as it were, to the false idea that modern society would have about hearing confession about sins of the flesh. And he plays to that particular audience because he wants to destroy the traditional notions of the integrity of one's confession and indeed the whole Catholic moral system as well. So he's making a mockery of that. And that has to be very clearly understood as something that's extremely, extremely grave, what he's doing. What you're saying is there doesn't need to be an encounter regarding this sin in confession. No, encounter is not necessary. And you really don't need to hold hands either. No, it's better no. not to hold hands here. It's just sort of like not needing certified witnesses either, I suppose. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. Yeah. Francis says uh, at World Youth Day, that there was a dream named Jesus. What is this? The, the, the culture of encounter is a call inviting There's us. A nightmare named Francis, I think. <laughs> <laughs> the culture of encounter is a call inviting us to dare to keep alive a shared dream. Yes, a great dream, a dream that has a place for everyone. The dream for which Jesus gave his life on the cross, for which the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost and brought fire to the heart of every man and woman in your hearts and mine, in the hope of finding room to grow and flourish. A dream named Jesus, sown by the Father and the confidence that it would grow and live in every heart. A dream running through our veins, thrilling our hearts and making them dance whenever we hear the command that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I suppose channeling his own inner Dr. Martin Luther King here talking about uh, dreams that he has. Yeah, he's been to the the top of the mountain and he's seen the promised land. (laughs) And he he may not get there with us, Father. (laughs) 
He talks about making them dance. I wonder if he was thinking about his bishops in Brazil. He made all of them dance, and boy, did they look stupid. <laughs> I, 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 look coordinated. I dare not send our listeners to go look up the YouTube video. It's just the. It's Please do not. No, no. But it's, it's like somebody. It's like some Disney writer. Disney copywriter wrote this speech for him, a dream named Jesus, sown by the Father. Oh, my goodness. I mean, even Protestant preachers don't give such horrible sermons, uh, Your Excellency. A dream named Jesus. I mean, even they would laugh. I think so. Although, I wouldn't be surprised if some of his archetype would pick up that particular phrase and throw it in. Because that's all they do is they just throw stuff in. They may throw it in for the Saturday night service. With the leftovers, right? Coming to homiletic and pastoral review soon. A dream named Jesus. The last of his commentaries before we we move towards the close of our episode today. Again, he talks about the sins. The sins of the flesh are not so serious. He goes on to say something. And and Father Chikata, you know, we've been doing this series for four years now. He always manages to keep upping the ante. He says here, Christ's transfiguration shows us the Christian perspective of suffering. Suffering is not sadomasochism. It is a necessary but transitory passage. All right. All all I can think of is some kid hearing this, some eight-year-old hearing this, and then saying, well, okay, well, the Pope uh, said that we're not supposed to be involved in sadomasochism. So, Mom, what's sadomasochism? (laughs) At the dinner table. At the dinner table. Suffer the little children to come unto me. Yeah, suffer indeed. There's a motive as well as a message in his madness He does things like this, particularly and specifically in some subjective sense to introduce that whole idea of perversion, living with perversion, that that's a normal part of life. Because for the tearing down of what's left of Christian morality, St. Paul's neck nominator in Vobis, let these things not even be named amongst you, has to be thrown out. And instead, he makes a point very frequently to make very improper references in his sermons so as to get people thinking in those terms. Think in terms not only of what you're hearing openly, but also of the subjective message, the subconscious message that this pervert wants to deliver. And you'll have a better idea of what he's achieving. We go back there. He's got an entire record of this. There is no Catholic God. Uh, I don't believe in this God spray. You know, our our Lord was uh, being a bit mischievous. All of these things, as you say, when people say he's stupid, it cannot be that he also has the satanic genius. Because when you see things like this, you see the genius of Satan within there, just infiltrating, being subversive, and getting people uh, in, in, in a very innocent way. It's a total Marxist approach, and he's rigorous and he's disciplined in his Marxist approach for destruction. Well, that is the end of our commentary on Francis for this quarter's episode of Francis Watch. There are just a couple smaller news stories that I wanted to encounter with uh, Your Excellency and Father. And the first was uh, Father Chikada came into uh, a bit of an exchange with a John Hunwicke. Father, you're the person in this story. I thought uh, you might bring our listeners in if they are not subscribing to FatherChikada.com, which you should and can easily do by going to FatherChikada.com. If you have it, was is a rather odd character. He was an uh, Anglican, and uh, eventually he was received into the Novus Order Church. And he has a um, blogspot column 
on different areas that particularly appealed to it. So he was uh, going on about, at this point, about criticizing the articles that uh, I had written about the new right of fiscal consecration, but demonstrating, you know, really once again, that people from the Novus Ordo Church, when it comes to the fundamental principles of traditional Catholic theology and theology of the sacraments, really don't know what they're talking about when they argue with you. So we had uh, exchange over the meaning of uh, one of the essential words in the Novus Ordo Rite of Episcopal Consecration. And so there was a dispute over that, and, and Hunwick brought up the dispute of Catholic theologians throughout history were at a certain point about the matter, the necessary matter for the sacraments. But once again, it showed that he didn't understand how the principles in theology work, that in fact, that there were these different opinions. There's no contradiction in the church teaching itself. And finally, it was Pius XII who resolved such a dispute as there was. And indeed, that's how it's supposed to work. Because that's the Catholic approach. The beauty of this gentleman, this clerical gentleman, is that he's one of the last surviving high church Anglicans. He's a member of the conciliar church now, but he brings with him all of the baggage of high church Anglicanism. He is perfectly at home in the conservative wing of this new one world religion, because that's what he's done for his entire life. That's what high church Anglicanism was. That is to say, Catholic practice and a certain amount of Catholic theology in the world of Protestantism. And you would say, wait a minute, those things don't go together, but that's the story of his life. So now it's perfectly normal for him to attempt to insert some elements of the traditional mass and, and the traditional Catholic theology in the Novus Ordo world. The trouble somebody like that has is that he's never been properly trained, a bit like Athanasius Schneider. That is to say, he went to an Anglican theological college and studied modernist Anglican theological courses for a few years. He's never had any study at all of Catholic theology, much less Catholic canon law. He doesn't know what he's talking about, but he's very much at home in the world of R&R, recognize and resist, because as an Anglican, that was his entire life as he put himself forward as an Anglo-Catholic resisting the local Protestant bishop. And that, I suppose, would be an interesting clerical conversations uh, episode, the issue of the Oxford movement and how to graft English Catholicism in its intellectual sphere, let's say Cardinal Newman coming on into Catholicism. But that's for another time and another series. The last thing that I wanted to discuss was the SSPX hilariously doing a bit of Photoshop. They had released, <laughs> they had released photos of their office staff. And almost all of the women were, I think all the women were wearing trousers. And he got huge <laughs> backlash. And then they pulled that photo down, put another one where you could have seen the women's trousers. There was now a smiling face with a woman in a scarf. Yeah, all I could think of was the books on the life of Stalin, where there's this the same picture of the Politburo that starts out, you know, with all these members, and then one by one, as the party line changes, they sort of disappear. <laughs> and there's a, another famous one about that in, in Hungary, actually, where the Hungarian Politburo was purged at a certain point, and when they published a revised picture, it wasn't until it was published that the party bigwigs noticed that one of the men who had been made to disappear was indeed not there, but his hat still was. 
So it, the the party line once again has been reworked and probably written out of history in the society of Saint Pius. I always thought they were somewhat Stalinist, Stephen, but they, this is this is shocking. Yes, I that's am, right. I am really just I'm scandalized. <laughs> but, but what's fascinating for anyone paying attention is that you can't Photoshop the praxis of their people. So if these people feel comfortable showing up and they don't have a regular day job, their day job is to work at the district office of the Society of St. Pius in the United yes, States. Yes. That's their job. That's mm-hmm. their day job. And in their day job, they feel comfortable dressing up as they normally do. They don't even bother to put on, as His Excellency often talks about in sermons, their Catholic costume because this is normal there. And uh, for those who are more in- interested in going into this deeper, the Call Me Jorge blog uh, brought this up and it pointed to a story they did in 2015. It was titled The Mystery of a Woman in a Very Short Skirt. And it was at a bell blessing in Europe with Bishop Filet. And you see Bishop Filet in mitre and cope surrounded by clergy. And there's a woman with a, as it says, very short skirt. And the question is the mystery. Hmm, how did this woman get here? What's wrong with this picture? And well, because the praxis and we're not talking about just working in an office. The praxis is that a blessing of bells, which is in the ritual, which is a ceremony. You have a woman dressed this way. She's not made to feel like she couldn't dress this way. And all the people who could rebuke her choose the path of silence. This is an illustration of one picture is worth a thousand words. The jig is up. The game is over, Pius Tenthers. Why are you still hanging around there? Maybe the next thing they'll show would be office lunch on Friday when somebody comes with the McBurgers K- with KF- or KFC even better uh, or KFC possibly or Kansas City yes maybe so yes yes no it's uh once you lose the battle on the cultural the popular cultural front everything else is just a mop-up operation after that and everything else is up for grabs the Novus Ordo knew that they changed those things right away like women not covering their heads for church Uh, and then the seemingly small changes at the mass. It's the seemingly small incidentals that tell the entire story. And that tells you pretty much everything you need to know about Pius X today. Yes, unless you're attached to the church and to his vicar on earth, not a shadow, not a cardboard version of it, you're going to drift. That's just the reality of things, Your Excellency and Father. You could say that you can't skirt the issue. <laughs> and and, and uh, as always, Father, you, you have uh, le jus, le, le most, le mot jus uh, for the situation. Jus. Um, and that will bring us to the close of the episode. Normally, I'd ask His Excellency what's going on in the seminary, but I can ask you, Father, because you were just there recently. Well, the students are all doing well. Uh, they had their uh, dose of sacramental uh, canon law inflicted on them by yours truly this this past week and uh, uh, the week before. They're getting things cranked up, of course, uh, for Holy Week, for the Holy Week celebrations. And then after that, we're going to have some of them visit up up here, uh, some of the seminarians, the two seminaries from Nigeria, uh, Thomas and John are going to come up and spend some time uh, with us helping out at St. Gertrude's and and doing a little touring of religious things in Cincinnati and getting to meet the people. So that's something that we'll be uh, looking forward to here. Uh, Also on my own front, the Chicada front, uh, there's a um, uh, video that we just uh, put out made by 
Father uh, Nicholas Disposito, one of the priests at the seminary, who did an interview with me about seminary teaching and my own seminary experience. So that is uh, out there. You can find it on fatherchicada.com, one of my more recent postings. Uh, another current project is I'm working on uh, an article about uh, the article that appeared by this Bishop Athanasius Schneider, in effect trying to short-circuit the idea of uh, Pope as a heretic would lose office. In other words, trying to shoot down Robert Bellarmine and trying basically to tell everyone, well, don't worry about Francis and what he says, even if it's heretical, you don't have to listen to him anyway, because that would be Pope worship. Uh, in any event, I'm working on a little article on that that will appear soon, and I hope it will help guide people through the issues. Your Excellency, St. Gertrude's. Well, thank you, Father, for asking. Sure. St. Gertrude's is all the buzz getting ready for Holy Week and completing an excellent Lent. The sermon series has been on the Holy Mass for a long time now, and our Lent meditations are along the lines of the Holy Mass, too. The idea is, and you can tune into any of those sermons at our sgg.org website, the, the idea is that what most people know about the, about Catholicism is there's their Sunday Mass. And there's liturgy, which is not directly, but indirectly the great teacher. So therefore, it would be good for them to understand what the Mass is and what we're doing at Mass and how it must influence our entire lives. So that's the reason why for these sermons, which have, as I say, gone on for quite a while. And for us, the, the Mass and Sacred Liturgy of St. Gertrude is really of capital or primary importance. As we finish this episode, we're about three weeks away from, well, le less than three weeks away from our Lord's great event of resurrection. And there's an excitement, I would say, Your Excellency, I think uh, as, as we get closer to this, we, we know that the liturgical ceremonies are going to get even more austere as we approach Holy Week. But uh, there's I suppose there's an excitement in this that even as these consolations are withdrawn from us, we know that there is a victory nearby. Yes, it is. It is our life. We relive with our Lord his passion and his death and his resurrection. And for us, it's not a dry obligation, something which is done on the side, maybe a little bit, but there's no sense going overboard. It, especially for the next few weeks, it determines the whole of our life. And this is only right because our blessed Savior himself lays down his life for us. Well, as always, Father Chicada, thank you for your time. And Your Excellency, thank you for substituting for Bishop Sanborn. And as always, thank you to our sponsor, Novus yes, Ordo Watch. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> we want to thank our I, I always wonder if you'd like to be in the guest seat. And that's, uh, that's very interesting. <laughs> and, 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 and now you found out, Your Excellency. And, and as we say, All thank right. you. Thank you to our sponsor, Novus Ordo Watch, for making this possible. And we'll be back next quarter to continue looking at the blatherings of this uh, Argentinian gentleman. And I respect and admire your patience very much for anyone who is involved in this. I must say, even preparing one show is fairly disgusting. No offense, gentlemen. And how you could bear to do this on a regular basis is, well, it's obviously a true act of supernatural charity, and I do admire it. Also an act of faith in the sense of encounter. I've encountered yeah. it, right. <laughs> but I, I see... No hands were held in the making of this program. Let that be clear. <laughs> Again, thank you, Your Excellency and Father. You're welcome.
This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.